Good morning. So if I could get a show of hands here this morning. How many of you live by your to-do lists? I've got a few, a few to-do list people. I'm a big to-do list person. I seriously cannot survive without a to-do list. Uh, last year, I, I came across a printable template online that you could use as a daily planner or to-do list. And at the top of their page, there was a question. I don't remember the exact wording, but it was essentially, what is the one thing that you are going to wish you had done today? So in other words, you mentally fast forward to the end of the day and think, what am I going to kick myself for not doing today? And then you write the answer to that question at the top of the page, and that becomes the one thing you know you will accomplish that day. I think of that as working with the end in mind, instead of just thinking about what seems most important to me in the moment, I consider the end, I consider the future, whether it's the end of the day, or the end of the week, the end of the year, or even the end of my life. And that is what we find the Apostle Paul doing at the end of his first letter to the Thessalonians. Paul, along with Silas and Timothy, is writing to these Christian believers in Macedonia, or what is now northern Greece, and it is clear he has the end in mind. What end does he have in mind? The end of the present age, the return of Jesus Christ to judge the living and the dead. Paul is so pleased with the Thessalonian Christians. Like his letter to the Philippians, you can just tell there's so much love and affection toward this community because they have been faithful in the face of hostility. But Paul isn't just thinking about them in the present. He's thinking about them in the light of Christ's return. Please listen again to his prayer for them from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do this. Paul desires that these Thessalonian Christians be ready to meet Jesus when he comes. Only Jesus' sacrifice on the cross could take away their sins and justify them before God as holy and blameless. And only God's Spirit can continue to purify their hearts and their minds and their bodies so that they both inwardly and outwardly manifest what God has already declared them to be, holy and blameless. But even if the Lord is doing all the heavy lifting here in preparing them to meet him face to face, there's still work for them to do to cooperate with what God is doing. God is the potter, they are the clay. But the clay can remain soft and easy to mold, 
or it can become so dried and uh, hard that God must break it to do anything with it. And so Paul provides the Thessalonians with a series of instructions that culminates in that prayer for them. Paul instructs them to respect their church leaders, to be patient and peaceful with one another, to be open to the Holy Spirit, to hold fast to what is good and to abstain from what is evil. He also tells them, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is what we're going to focus on this morning, these brief instructions that were written to help the Thessalonians prepare for Christ's coming and that can help us prepare as well. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. And guess what? We are not going to take them in order. We are going to begin this morning with praying without ceasing. So what does it mean to pray without ceasing? Are we to remain on our knees in prayer 24-7? Of course not. Jesus did not do that. He did not instruct his disciples to do that. But Jesus was a man of prayer. He routinely would withdraw to quiet places to spend time alone with his heavenly father. He prayed throughout the day. He blessed food before he shared it with others. He prayed as he ministered to others. Sometimes he even prayed out loud specifically so the people around him could know and understand what it was he was doing. When the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray, he taught them what we like to call the Lord's Prayer, which begins, Our Father who art in heaven. By teaching them that prayer, he gave them a template for prayer. They learned that they could, like Jesus, call God their Father which was a much more intimate word for addressing God than they were used to. They were invited in the Lord's Prayer to submit themselves to God's will, to call on God for their daily needs, to confess their sins, and to ask for God's protection from temptation and evil. So it's possible that when Paul told these Christians to pray without ceasing, he simply meant that they should pray frequently and at least pray every day. However, some have sought to maintain an inward posture of prayer at all times. A 17th century French monk called Brother Lawrence developed what he called the practice of the presence of God. And his method was very much what it sounds like. He practiced being aware of God's presence at all times. Whether he was working or walking, standing or sitting, he worked to pay attention to the fact that God was with him. In one of his letters, he wrote, there is not in the world a kind of life more sweet and delightful than that of a continual conversation with God. But Lawrence's conversation with God did not always involve words. 
It was instead an ongoing awareness of God's loving presence. Sometimes that meant he spoke with the Lord. Sometimes that meant he just rested in his presence. But friends, we must learn to crawl before we can walk, and we must walk before we can run. And so rather than making sure we are in prayer every moment our goal, I would suggest we begin by making sure that we are in prayer every day. Now, we know we can call on God at any time, on any day, but we would do well to find a regular time each day to spend with him. Some of you think, I've got this down, and others don't. Wherever you are, you know where you are today. Once we really settle into spending time in prayer daily, we will find that it changes our days dramatically. And it will often be the sweetest part of our day. We will not want to miss it. Neglecting our times of prayer is like neglecting our family. It doesn't feel right. If we have a spouse or children, we've made a commitment to them because we love them. We don't want to miss our time with them. And if we do want to miss our time with them, then we know that there's a problem. If we've committed ourselves to Christ, then we necessarily will want to spend time with him. And if we don't want to spend time with the Lord, then we ought to talk to him about that. And I speak from experience here. I have more than once started my prayer time with, Lord, why am I avoiding you? And going from there. It's possible to make progress just being honest about where we're at. But whatever we do, let us not deprive ourselves of prayer time with the Lord. This is an essential ingredient to the Christian life. And as Brother Lawrence alluded to, it is one of the sweetest and best parts of it. Think about it. The creator of the universe wants to spend time in conversation with you. What could be more important than that? I don't say that to induce guilt. We all fall short, but we should recognize that the Lord is our priority, and we should live our lives with the end in mind, the end being meeting Jesus face to face. If we've been meeting the Lord every single day, how much sweeter will our meeting with Jesus be when we do see him face to face? So talk to the Lord. Spend time with him. Sit in his presence. Listen to him. Rejoice. Give him thanks and praise. Sing to him. Draw to him. Paint to him. Sculpt to him. Journal to him. Whatever it looks like, Spend time in conversation with the Lord. Use the Bible. Use the Psalms. Use the Book of Common Prayer. Use your own words, but never, ever stop praying. So from praying without ceasing, let us continue with rejoice always. Now, as commands go, rejoice always may sound strange to us. We were likely raised by parents who taught us to be polite, who taught us to say please 
and thank you, but we were probably not taught you need to rejoice. Now, many children, especially our young children, don't need to be told to rejoice because they express their joy with enthusiasm naturally, with their smiles and laughter and loud noises. Some adults continue to openly exhibit their joy, while others seldom express joy, or sometimes it even seems experience joy. For Christians, though, joy is a fruit of the Spirit. And as people filled with the Holy Spirit, it is expected that we will manifest joy, specifically joy in the Lord. As Paul writes to the Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Now, I realize that this may be a difficult instruction for those of us who maybe feel like we have every reason not to rejoice. During the Advent and Christmas season especially, some of us experience melancholy as our minds turn to people we love who are not here with us for a variety of reasons, including death, health issues, and broken relationships. The problems that we face, health problems, financial worries, work and family conflicts, they don't take a holiday break, and in sometimes they intensify during the holidays. Christmas can bring about a great deal of stress, and yet the word of God says, rejoice. In fact, we find when we read the New Testament, we run into this idea of rejoicing in suffering again and again and again. Now, if rejoicing and suffering sounds strange to you, you're not alone. It was a strange concept for the Greeks as well. For them, joy and rejoicing was connected with pleasure. But in the New Testament, joy and rejoicing is less about having a good time and more about the goodness of God and the hope we have in Jesus Christ. In Romans 5, we read, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has, who has been given to us. So in taking the long view, keeping the character of God in mind, Christians can rejoice in their sufferings with endurance, hope, and the love of God. Jesus said in Matthew 5, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. And the witness of persecuted Christians from the first century to today bears out the fact that there is a special kind of grace for those who suffer for Jesus. Consider Paul and Silas in a Philippian jail praying and singing hymns to God with their feet in the stocks. 
This was after they had been stripped of their clothes and beaten with rods for their faith. So even as their bodies cried out in pain, they rejoiced in the Lord by his spirit. And then the Lord gave them the opportunity to witness to and baptize the jailer and his entire family. Or consider a more recent account of a woman in China who just last year was arrested for being part of an illegal house church. At the jail, she was put in a cell with several other women and was forced to stand perfectly still for hours during the night. Even in the midst of interrogations and physical and mental hardships, she was able to witness to her fellow prisoners about Jesus Christ. She silently prayed for her guards and she was able to sing songs to Jesus. As she later told Christianity Today magazine, I learned to deal with hardship one day at a time. I was not overwhelmed by the circumstances or physical illnesses. Even when I was locked up in a jail cell, my soul was still free. Now, rejoicing and suffering does not mean we ignore our circumstances or the injustice that we're facing. Paul and Silas, for example, refused to simply leave the Philippian jail quietly because as Roman citizens, they had been treated unfairly, publicly beaten, and jailed without a trial, and they made sure the authorities were aware of this. The Christian woman in China decided to get the word out about how the Chinese government was cracking down on house churches by telling her story to a reporter. We can oppose evil and pursue good even as we rejoice in suffering. Our rejoicing forces us, though, to put things in perspective, keeping the Lord and the hope we have in him at the center of our minds and hearts. So closely connected with rejoicing always is giving thanks in all circumstances. The Greek word used here for giving thanks is eucharisteo, which is where we get the word eucharist. So when we celebrate the Eucharist, we are literally giving thanks. And of course, it is easy for us to give thanks when we remember what our Lord Jesus Christ did for us, how his body was broken and his blood was shed for us and our sins. When we give thanks in all circumstances, we are challenged to view our circumstances through the lens of God's great love for us. Because whatever is happening in our lives, I can guarantee you this has not changed. Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. See, we're thinking with the end in mind there. Our health and safety, our comfort and relationships may be at risk, but our standing before God is secure because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. In addition, the Lord does care about our circumstances. He cares about us and what we're going through. Of course, sometimes it's not our circumstances that keep us from expressing thanksgiving. Sometimes it's just an ungrateful attitude. Sometimes we just forget 
to thank him for all he's done for us. But we can repent of this and ask the Lord to grant us grateful hearts. I personally have found it interesting in recent years that I keep running across articles about gratitude and the positive effects that it has on our mental and physical health. Feeling grateful has been associated with a decrease in chronic pain, depression, anxiety, and positive effects for sleep, mood, and immune function. This should not surprise us. The Lord created us to be in loving relationship with him, and that includes gratitude to him for all he has done for us. And so when we think and act in ways that the Lord designed, in this case with the experience of gratitude, it makes sense that we feel better and we function better. Just think, 2,000 years before scientific studies told us it was good for us, Christians were being instructed, give thanks in all circumstances. And when we know and we experience just how good and generous God is, we have even more reason to give thanks. During this season of Advent, we focus on the great gift that we have received in Jesus Christ, who came to rescue us from the eternal and deadly consequences of sin. We also anticipate the return of Jesus in glory, and we pray that the Lord would prepare us to meet him by purifying us and making us holy. There's much we can do to participate in our sanctification and rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, and giving thanks in all circumstances is a very good start. But ultimately, we must remember that he is the potter and we are the clay. And so we must submit and surrender to him as he works to make us holy and ready to meet him. I want to close today by praying for you as Paul prayed for the Thessalonians. So please receive this blessing and prayer. May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do this. Amen.